Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And today we are still working through Systematic Theology 3, uh, specifically the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I have forgotten what we're even talking about because it feels like it's been a while. We're on a little riot hiatus. So if you guys didn't know, trying to avoid bullets down. We're in ground zero of Kenosha, Wisconsin with all the riots going on. So we've had to kind of stay low and... But now we're in our safe bunker. Yes. We're having a cigar. We're relaxing. We're doing this. And then right after this, we're going to actually do the one that will drop before this, which is on Black Lives Matter, which we were ready to do a while ago, but... A couple weeks ago. Yeah. It's been, a, it's been a couple, couple, couple weeks. I'll say Nothing that. Nothing like bullets and Molotov cocktails to slow things down plus navigating quarantines and covid and trying to keep a church moving in there somewhere i'm just telling you 2020 it's been a blessing <laughs> whatever that means right now we pride ourselves on not being that banter podcast where you're hitting 30 second 30 second 30 seconds so we're gonna shut up and yet here and, we are yeah we're doing it yeah but we're also trying to warm ourselves up because we're both kind of distracted is that what you call it well i think i told you on the way here it's been it's it's felt like and I, I think this has to be true for most people but it's felt like very short days and long nights yeah most well, people aren't sleeping well and everyone's on edge and it's like 95 and well how did you humid. describe yourself you, you you were lying there with your ipad open to live stream of the riots with your phone running the police scanner yeah. And, and you're just saying, I should go to bed, but you, you don't. You yeah. can't. Well, I'm alone. I was alone in the house. I sent, I sent my wife and kids away. And yeah, meanwhile, outside my house, we have a raging gun battle right in front of my home. Yeah, I'm you're, like, you're well, definitely the, closer than I am. I'm a few blocks out. But. Well, you, you live in an affluent neighborhood. I live not. But we're only a few blocks really away from each other. Yeah. We're separated by a cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i got so many anyway. things i should not say right now <laughs> i'm going to i you know i'm too tired i, I actually exhorted our my church to be wise on what they say and do on social media right now and then here i am blabbering <laughs> away <laughs> so let us try and be models um so all right why don't you systematic theology us. three holy people are still pressing beer. 30 seconds <laughs> <laughs> yeah so la last time we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so today what we're going to begin over the next few episodes, we'll see how many of this goes. Um, we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, which of course is where he becomes prominent. Uh, and specifically this episode will deal with the Holy Spirit and Jesus in particular. Um, which and, is cool. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people don't really grasp or think about that in you know their relationship. Yeah. Well, I what I'm hoping that these episodes will actually do is show how the, that economic function of the spirit 
changes throughout redemptive history. So what he did in the Old Testament is not what he did with Jesus. What he did with Jesus is not necessarily what he did with the disciples who became the apostles. And what he did with the apostles is not necessarily indicative of what he does normatively in the church. And that's the key because so much of what you see going on in the church where people are trying to really emphasize the spirit, it's praiseworthy on one level. I mean, yeah, they're yeah, trying to say, look, he's God. But on the other level is that they're trying to make what you just said, they're trying to make it nor excuse me, normative what the Bible doesn't make normative. Just because Elijah, you know, can lie down and breathe life back into the dead body doesn't mean that we should be doing that, you know? Right. I mean, that kind of an idea. Just because you read something in the Bible doesn't mean, therefore, this how God would function. And I, I'm sorry, my mind just went to the Bethel. Yeah, um, no, that's, where, that's where part of it, yeah. The girl was, the little girl, I guess, was died, and they had all those resurrection services, and they're going to bring her back to life. And, and yet, then when the COVID hits, they stop meeting. It's like, you know, if you were, if, if your theology was true, you would have been banishing all of this stuff right and left, but you're not because you're a fraud, but a whole bunch of people sadly put their hope in you. Yep. And, and it's bad. So a good sound pneumatology, doctrine and spirit will cure a lot of yeah. fables. Well, that's exactly there. why we're doing this. Yeah. Um, well, before we get into that role of the Holy Spirit with regard to Jesus, uh, it's important to understand that the Holy Spirit actually shows up in the Gospels before he interacts with Jesus. And so the first time we see him uh, in the New Testament is actually with John the Baptist. And so let me just say a few things about John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit before we get to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. First of all, and we're just going to kind of do a survey of the passages here, but um, we see John filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. And so in Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, uh, Luke records, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. This is talking about the forerunner who would be John the Baptist, of course. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now with this, of course, this was unique. So again, you can't take this as normative in any way. This is not, we don't see this anywhere else in the New Testament um, and or in the scripture for that matter. And so we should not use this to try and build a theology in any way of the Holy Spirit, at least his normative role. Um, the nature of salvation with babies, this is also not something we should be developing from this passage I or the Holy Spirit filling. I, I, I hope I don't do him wrong, but I think this was one of the passages Al Mohler, though, referred to with his idea of the state of the soul of babies who which die and it's like what the, boy you're extrapolating yeah make what, what one day i don't we haven't done a thing on where do babies go right um we, we probably touched on it a couple times but, but i don't think we've yeah but yeah it just blew me away how how if it wasn't him it was somebody else but they were dealing with this and i'm like you are extrapolating way beyond what the text says right it is an incredible passage though for understanding the personhood of a human being and because the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell just tissue tissue and <laughs> yeah exactly it's just a clump of cells yeah so it's a great one on the abortion issues right um, same thing with uh, well go ahead so yeah um, so with all this so the Gospel of Luke it's it's historical literature and it's simply recording what took place uh, it is not a go and therefore do likewise passage 
uh, nor right. is it a passage that teaches anything about the norm, normal or normative work of the Holy Spirit. So again, to attempt to build a theology of the Spirit off of this one verse would be inappropriate, and I would say actually irresponsible. And to your points earlier with the Bethel, Bethel stuff, that's exactly why it's irresponsible. It's, it's harmful. Uh, second, John starts his ministry by picking up on the Old Testament theme of expectation. We talked about that last time. John spoke of a fresh, new, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but then he heightens that expectation by associating it with the Messiah. So John shows up and he starts invoking this language of the Christ, who is described as being the one who will baptize them in the Holy Spirit. So that's new. That, that's something that right. John now, he, he, he draws from some of that imagery, but now he heightens it by associating explicitly the Holy Spirit with the coming Messiah. Um, nothing again in the Old Testament speaks of the Spirit as so, being associated with the Christ. So now, and that's important because I'm just thinking also of what we we just finished out a series on basically hermeneutics yeah. um, before we got finally got back into preaching formally at our church. And one of the things we talked about is progressive revelation and um, how it doesn't replace what what you learn in the New Testament does not replace what the Old Testament says, right? Um, Though it, people it do it all the time, but yeah. it does expand. So we see that there's going to be the coming of the Spirit in the Old Testament, but what we didn't understand because it wasn't overtly stated is that close connection with Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. Now Luke expands that by progressing the revelation further, and now we see what's happening. Yeah. Now, perhaps there would have been loose associations because remember, we also talked about this last right, time. Right. Old Testament leaders were understood to have an anointing of the Spirit, so kings, judges. But John then speaks about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in which this messianic figure will baptize God's people in the Holy Spirit. So yeah. that's all new. Let me read that passage because that that's good too. It also gets into that hermeneutic principle we talked about of not taking the New Testament and reading it backwards. So we can look backwards and say, okay, there's these loose connections. Right. But but now we don't say that's what they're really saying. That's now imposing New Testament upon the Old Testament text. Rather, we can see now some connections, but we still recognize that there's additional revelation going on. So Absolutely. Um, I'll read out Luke chapter 3, 15 to 17, then you can comment. Um so now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Yeah, so here we, we see two expectations in this passage, um, and the first is heightened because of the second. So the first, um, the first, the Old Testament anticipation of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we see that. Um, there's an expectation there. But that is then heightened because it was about to be fulfilled within their very generation. And so for these people who are listening to John, I mean, you could, if you put yourself in their shoes, they understood the Old Testament. And so what they're understanding by John's words is all of history 
is about to come to a head. I mean, that would just be pretty wild to think about. It's going to happen in your generation. This is going to take place. Um, let me also just that, do that. That is pretty. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, it'd be like saying, just so you know, the return of the Lord is coming. Well, you're still alive on this earth. So yeah. for 2000 years, we've been anticipating this, but he's coming. And so that's similar perhaps to what they were feeling. Well, it's also go cool that he came to the common person and then made these announcements. It wasn't the royalty and the powerful, but, but to the people, um, the shepherds, uh, yeah, yeah. Just the common people. Um, it's actually for me, at least a humbling encouragement. But. Yeah. Um, let me just throw this side note in here. Cause there's a lot of talk these days about fire or baptism of fire or let Holy fire, Ghost fire. Yeah. Let the fire <laughs> of the spirit come upon me. It's yeah. Like, fall oh, down know. like Holy Ghost fire or whatever. Um, and it's particularly, uh, prominent in the charismatic movement and, uh, some Pentecostal movements. Um, but nowhere is the use of fire, and this is important to understand, nowhere is the use of fire, especially when associated with the Spirit, ever a good thing. Um, fire is associated with judgment. <laughs> and so notice Jesus here, he's going to cleanse his floor. This is what John the Baptist is saying. Uh, that is, he is going to get rid of all the false and bad things claiming to be of him, but for the specific purpose of making room for his wheat. Um, so he is going to, as John says here, burn up the chaff. Uh, that is false forms of that which claims to be associated with God. Um, it, it's going to burn up all that is just not of the Messiah. So, so burning with the Holy Spirit or longing for Holy Spirit fire is not a good thing within this context. And so we need to get better songs, I think. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I get, it's also, a, I'm, I'm going to harp on this hermeneutic stuff, I guess, more than I expected I would. But it also gets back into the basics of hermeneutics. You know, it's not hard to figure out when he says, I'm going to baptize with the spirit and fire. You know, you're like, well, what's that? And then immediately they ignore the context and they develop up this weird thing, um, you know, about Holy Ghost fire. But it's like, the text tells you immediately what the fire represents. And that's his, what you just, just said, the cleansing of the chaff. Purifying, yeah. Yeah, just that wiping out of that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it, good, good word. All right. So with that, let's talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So that was all precursor to Jesus. Um, the Holy Spirit was already doing on, on scene, doing his work. Um, the first thing, and obviously critical is his involvement in the incarnation. So the gospel accounts emphasize that Mary is a virgin. Therefore, the conception of Jesus is viewed as a miracle wrought about by God. And so specifically, sorry. Spectifully. <laughs> Boy, you're spelling. Yeah. Well, what bothers me There's is no Google, red line. Yeah, Google accepts that. We literally have this word invented spectifully. Maybe they've just given up on me. <laughs> yeah, probably. It's like, oh, Matt yeah. Miller's typing this. Oh, this, this is his Google Doc? Yeah. We're, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you've broken spell check. <laughs> but it's up to me on the fly to literally. <laughs> well, it shows your skills here. Yeah. I couldn't help but giggle. Sorry. You want to fix that while I keep going? So specifically, the Holy Spirit is <laughs> the one credited as bringing forth the incarnation of the eternal second person of the Trinity. So um, 
the first thing we see is incarnation. The second thing is the baptism. Um, the water, the water. The father speaks words of co commendation over the son in Luke three twenty one to twenty two. He says, "When now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven." You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So, I mean, it's not a difficult thing. So not only in the incarnation, but now we see the Spirit ascend, uh, descending upon Jesus as uh, like a dove. It's not an actual dove, uh, but it was like that. Um, and again, this then fulfills an Old Testament prophecy out of Isaiah 42.1, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So the, uh, the descending of the dove in the Old Testament symbol of God anointing his holy one. Um, what you have, though, is an, an event that marks Jesus out for that messianic ministry. And now he's going to represent God to the people of Israel, um, which was always the role of God's anointed in the Old Testament. Yeah. And some, I've had this question asked to me when I was even preaching through, look, is why did the Spirit descend as of a dove? And the simple answer is we just don't know. Um, <laughs> there's <laughs> nothing hermeneutics <laughs> too. It's like, why invent what we don't know? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing in the Old Testament that associates anointing of these kings or judges with the symbol of a dove. Um, so we, do, we don't know. Some people speculate it has to do with the idea of peace. And I've heard also with Noah. Oh, oh sure. But I'm like, yeah. No, how? Yeah, yeah, I mean, how do you prove that? I don't. Um, but nevertheless, what it did depict is something coming down upon him, which is anointing, um, and that is that is the point. Uh, let me also just say, I forgot to put this in there, but just back to the John the Baptist thing. Notice we always keep saying we like keep beating to death that the role of the Holy Spirit is always to make much of Jesus Christ. Well, the Holy Spirit fills John the Baptist, but for what purpose? To point to, to declare the coming of the Christ. And so right away, we're already getting insight into what that explicit role of the Holy Spirit's going to be. Um, now, let me talk about the temptations in the wilderness. Um, One of my favorite series, little mini series you did so far in Luke. Oh, really? I, like I, 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 I just enjoyed your whole time through Luke to be honest. And guys, uh, we, we've said it, we'll say it again. You can go to missiodayfellowship.org and our sermons, if you want, ever want to hear how we preach, our sermons are there. But Matt's been going through Luke and I just, I really, really, really enjoyed your whole section on him in the wilderness. I thought it was well done. Um, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and, you know, I thought, okay, I, I think I know this well. And I really was instructed each time. I mean, I'm like, wow, I'm just really being blessed here as I, I heard you. So I, I would really commend to you Matt's uh, work, not just there, all the way through Luke so far. You just finished up another great one in Luke 5. You're yeah. almost finished with that chapter. Yeah. Chapter 5 has been, I, th I think, one of my favorites. Those little I think it's been pieces. the most grace-filled 
Yeah, we're in the meat of the gospel now, but yeah, but I mean, because you're seeing how he deals with people, and 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 the, I I, did, I still get actually emotional. What good friends those friends were of the paralytic, yeah, that they loved their buddy enough to say, "Screw it, we're going through the roof," you know, <laughs> <Start> ripping tiles. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's friends. I yeah. mean those are the kinds of guys you could, yeah, you know, like you can go a long way when you got buddies like that with you, and um and his kindness to then, yeah, uh, give them the ability to walk but then the next one with levi um our namesake matthew um it, they're just good they're the stories of grace yeah so. and then the paralytic before that or, i'm sorry the leper i was gonna say we just, <laughs> just talked, talked about, about that. that yeah the, the leper as well so anyhow i commend all of his stuff but your stuff on the temptation in the wilderness so it's good you're talking about yeah that. um so immediately after jesus baptism the Holy Spirit leads. Uh, he literally drives or compels. It's very aggressive language in the Greek. Uh, um, ekbino, to uh, cast out, if you will. So he he drives him, compels him, as Mark says, that he casts him into the wilderness. And it says, for the purpose of being tempted. So Mark 1, 12 through 13, immediately the Spirit impelled, again, ekbino, uh, Cast, casted him out uh, into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Uh, Matthew 4, 1, his rendition says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, there we have an infinitive of purpose for you grammar people. What is the purpose of the Spirit leading him into the wilderness? Well, to be tempted. This is what the Spirit's doing. But that's a huge point. Yeah. It's, it's like the Spirit wasn't just like, okay, buddy, you know, we're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you up heal. there. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll be with you and stuff. It's like, nope. First, I'm going to act bino. <laughs> <laughs> Drive you. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then second, I'm, uh, you know, my whole purpose of this is not to just hang around while you get, it's not a passive, but it's, it's the literal purpose of the spirit is to cause Jesus to come into this time of great testing. Yes. Yeah, 100%. So Luke 4, 1 through 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now here, the purpose of the Holy Spirit uh, in sending Jesus out to be tempted was to prepare him for the many hardships and difficulties that ministry would lay ahead. This is why Luke records it immediately after baptism where he was commissioned for ministry before he begins that formal ministry, you're gonna be tempted and tested. Um, many tend to think of Jesus' wilderness temptations as perhaps his most difficult. I think that's a misunderstanding. I think they were simply the first of many and reflected much of what awaited him. And so while we can view Jesus' temptation as a model for how to fight temptation, resist the devil, all that good stuff. The overt emphasis is actually to reveal how Jesus perfectly accomplished the obedience that we cannot accomplish. So, um, Well, again, that gets into our hermeneutics again, yeah. but that the Bible is not about you. Right. Um, and so we, we turn that into how to battle temptation. And you know, it's like, that's not the point of the text though i mean i guess you can make some application there i wouldn't tell you not to but yeah use the word of god to battle yeah yeah I but mean, use truth praise sure. god that you're going to screw that up so badly praise god jesus didn't praise god that he did it for you yeah did it, did it perfectly right. <laughs> you know that's the point and you want to cling it's far more to better to cling to the jesus who perfectly endured than to cling to your exceedingly poor yeah. efforts. <laughs> yeah. Now theologians will distinguish between 
the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Mm -hmm. The passive obedience of Christ is when he hung on the cross and bore that full weight of the Father's wrath, right? And so we think about that's where salvation took place. And while that's true, don't forget, you needed to have a perfect unblemished sacrifice. Um, And so Jesus perfectly obeyed. That's his active obedience. He actively obeyed on our behalf. And so I I even tell people, you are saved by good works. it's just not your good works that saved you. It's Jesus' good and perfect works that saved you. Now, he is described as being in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, this, of course, harkens back to Israel's failure to obey God and resist that temptation in that wilderness episode. Um, Israel sinned in unbelief, not trusting God's promises in his word. Uh, but Jesus here, believing the word, perfectly obeys God's will and therefore, again, vicariously obeys on our behalf. Um, in fact, you see a strong contrast in how Israel sinned by grumbling uh, <laughs> because of their their hunger, and yet Jesus is recorded as not becoming hungry until after the 40 days were complete, Luke chapter 4 and verse 2. And so his desires were controlled by the word and the will of God alone, and that's so important to, to keep in mind. Um, you want to pick this up? Nope. You want me to keep going? I think okay. why well, I was going to, and then I thought, now this part you should do too, and I'll pick up in this street. Okay. So the point, though, is that Jesus— Oh, hey, we're having another civil arrest advisory right now. I love our city. Oh, there <laughs> it is. Ignore it. Yeah. Um, the point is that Jesus had to be prepared uh, via temptation <clears throat> to be able to say yes to the ultimate temptation that we— pr- be presented at the cross. Um, in Luke 4.13, after he passes these temptations, it says, and the devil withdrew, um, but for but for an opportune time. Well, when will that opportune time be? I think it was in Gethsemane. I think it was just previous to that cross. Um, in fact, this is why he was able to pray at Gethsemane to be delivered, uh, and yet was still controlled by that greater desire to fulfill the Father's will. His resistance of Satan uh, in the wilderness um, was proleptic, essentially, of his defeat of Satan on the cross. Um, All right, I learned that in seminary, but I can't remember. Uh, it's looking forward to what's to come. It'd been a lot easier just to say that, but less cool. But we're doing theology. I know. So I'm dropping theology words. Bam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Faith, fable, <laughs> and cool words. That's our new word. You need some more sleep. Um, <laughs> no, just yeah, what I do. Yeah. I really do. <laughs> one, one more note here. Many, uh, especially charismatics, equate being filled with the Holy Spirit as the impetus for being able to do wonders and miracles and possess unique powers and experiences. But the gospel, and this is so important, the gospels record being filled with the Holy Spirit as the impetus for the beginning of spiritual satanic attack. And we see this exemplified here in the experience of Jesus. Um, it's important that we not miss how the very first role of the Spirit in his life was to put him into a difficult situation uh, where many undesirable things about it. Again, he, he, he impelled him. He cast him into this, this temptation. It's the first thing the Spirit does with Jesus when he essentially becomes full with him, as the Gospels describe it. All right, so then we get into his ministry. So we, we, we have Jesus. Uh, he's empowered now for three years by the Spirit. To do what? To teach, disciple, heal, and rebuke the religious critics. So in other words, every time you see all that, that's not just Jesus doing that on his own. One, he's doing the will of the Father. So he's there doing exactly what the Father sent, and he's doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So we see, again, the whole Trinity at work 
in, in all that. But this is all by the power of the Spirit. Again, this is an unprecedented working of the Spirit in the life of a person. It's unlike any other anointing of the Spirit upon a person in previous times. In, indeed, it is a filling, uh, a unique power, uh, and the very fulfillment of, again, Isaiah 61.1, uh, where uh, Jesus quotes when he's teaching in Luke 4, remember that the Spirit had not yet come in the new covenant sense. That's important also. This is still a very unique in-between time, I guess. Very much so. Um, so Jesus is still actually under the old covenant, something people miss all the time when reading the Gospels. And yet the Spirit is filling him in an unprecedented way. Again, this is why we can't take the Gospels or the Book of Acts uh, necessarily as normative. It is a hinge period um, in redemptive history, and it's very, uh, as a result, very unique things are taking place. I argue Acts is too. I mean— Yep. In in that sense, you you got the now and not yet. The now is much more than it was in the Gospels, but it's still. I mean, you got people who haven't. Yeah, yeah just it's just a strange time. So you shouldn't be treating Acts as normative either. Yeah. Uh, yep. I'm preaching through Acts. That's why we're yakking like this. Um, you want to give that quick side note? Sure. Um, kind of unrelated. I don't know how many of you are familiar, but there's a growing movement today called Spirit Christology. Um, and the major emphasis is to show that Jesus was essentially a man filled with the Holy Spirit like no one else, par excellence. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't even know that. Mm -hmm. the, the claim is that Jesus was so dominated and filled by the Spirit that this is the reason he was able to do any and all that he did, especially the miracles. Uh, this has its roots in things like docetism or adoptionism. We've talked about those in past. They're ancient heresies that... Jesus received the Spirit simply because he was a man of virtue. That's what they teach. We showed that that is not correct. Um, the role of, of miracles actually is not meant to draw attention to the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it's to demonstrate that Jesus was indeed the very Son of God. He was the fullness of God. Uh, they were powerful manifestations of his divine nature. Um, so, for example, the seven signs in the Gospel of John, if you go and read those, they're always followed by a statement that these were done so that it might be shown that he is the son of God. Um, we just see that over and over again. So again, this, this, that is the point of miracles. Even for the apostles throughout the book of Acts, they are meant to demonstrate that Jesus is who he said he was. They, the apostles were his sent ones, and so they're still connected to him. So having said that, though, Jesus does nothing apart from the Spirit because he is the triune God. Um, so, so the movement of spirit Christology is very flawed and primarily because it's not a proper understanding of the nature of the Trinity. Okay, so then we also have uh, his death, uh, Hebrews 9, 14. Uh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what you have in a passage like that, that it's abundantly clear that what Jesus offered, that Jesus offered himself up as that atonement for our sins, we know that, it was without blemish, but it was through the eternal spirit. Uh, so this is also a reference to Jesus's obedience on account of the spirit. Um, in fact, that phrase, through the spirit, is ambiguous. Um, so it is a reference to the spirit empowering him to offer himself, or let me ask, in a question. So is it a reference to the Spirit empowering him to offer himself as a sacrifice? Uh, 
While on this reading, the presence of the Spirit empowers him to be obedient to this final act of offering himself unto death. Or another way you can look at it is, is it a reference to the fact that Jesus was able to offer himself by his own will, but that this offering would be an offering that is without blemish? So on that reading, the presence of the Spirit empowered him to obey his whole life, and so now this final sacrifice can be one of perfection. And In other words, here it would be the Holy Spirit protected him throughout his entire life, so that through his entire life, it's without blemish. Well, which one is it? Probably the former one is best, that as he was still sinless before receiving the Spirit as baptism, uh, but it's tricky. Um, because he qualifies the Spirit with the, the term eternal, which signifies that Christ was never without the Spirit. Christ is still the eternal God, right? Um, that, that's, again, the mystery of the Incarnation. I yeah. mean, it's, but um, So as such, he was able to obey before baptism as he was in some way never without the Spirit since eternity past. I mean, and that's what the mystery is. Yeah, yeah. And so when you start picking at any of these things, this is where most fable or heresy starts to come is you start to go beyond the text and you have to accept just simply, here's what the text says. God in his infinite wisdom says, that's enough for you to know. And we always want to pick at those things. And invariably we wander into places we ought not to go. Yep. Um, you want to do the resurrection? Yeah. So when it comes to the resurrection, then a couple of passages, Romans 8, 11 says, but if the spirit of him, that is the father who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he, the father who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Um, and then another one, possibly, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who has revealed, was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So what's clear is that it was the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. But how did he do it? Well, he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, triune work. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So in the same way, the Father and this is the good news, will raise those who have died in Christ, but he will do it by the power of the Holy Spirit as well. And so this is keeping, again, in step with biblical theology of the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who gives life. Uh, we see the Spirit giving life and bringing order in that creation account. Uh, we see the Spirit giving life or new life to a believer in John 3. Uh, it is the Spirit who regenerates and gives life to a dead, unregenerate heart. And so in a similar way, it ultimately, it will be the Spirit who will bring resurrection to life, uh, those in Christ, by raising them from the dead. All right, so let's also get some comments on Jesus' life in association with the Holy Spirit. So like John the Baptist, Jesus heightened the anticipation, anticipation of a fresh new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're not going to give you all the passages on in the podcast. You can look at the show notes if you want to see them. A prominent one, though, would be John 14, 14 through 17, where it says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Uh, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. And then that key phrase, and will be in you. So here, not only does Jesus promise the coming of the spirit to abide with the disciples, but he heightens that. Um, expectation by saying that the Spirit will also dwell in them. 
Another one would be John 7, 37 to 39. Now on the last on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Um, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So you also have a connection of when the Spirit would be given in that way. <clears throat> so what's clear at this point in history is that there were certain events that had to take place before the Spirit would come and work in a special way. Uh, however, it it, it the point is that it's not as though the Spirit was somehow absent before Pentecost. Rather, it's that in his economic role, it would not change until certain things happened, uh, the final event being Christ's ascension into glory. So you also see this in Luke 22, um, in verses 46 to 49, and Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where he says, you know, you go to Jerusalem, shut up, wait until the Spirit comes. So he continues to do that heightening of this fresh, new, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so post-resurrection, he emphasizes to his disciples that this promise of old is about to happen to him in just a few days. Yeah. Um, well, Jesus also then, he, he taught directly or explicitly on the Holy Spirit. His major teaching on the Spirit is recorded in John 14 through 16. Those are the key chapters. Um, but a summary of the teaching of those passages is, is these. First of all, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as coming from both the Father and the Son. In 15 verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. Um, so Jesus there is, is going to send the Spirit, but evidently it's the Spirit coming from the Father. Uh, Romans 8 and verse 9 fills this out by saying that the Father sends the Holy Spirit in his name, in the name of Jesus. And likewise, Jesus also says that he sends the Spirit in the name of the Father. Uh, there, the Spirit is called the Spirit of the Father, and he's also identified as the Spirit of the Son. Uh, second, we spoke a little on this last time, but it's important to distinguish the language of send and proceed. Uh, the term send is, is future, um, and that's in reference to Pentecost. It's important to keep these terms uh, separate. Um, but the term proceed is a present term. It is speaking of an ongoing relationship. Uh, in fact, the language of proceed is why, again, we embrace that thing we talked about last time, that filioque clause, um, which just means and the sun. Uh, that's that thing that created that split between the East, which is modern-day Eastern Orthodoxy, and the West, which is modern-day Roman Catholicism. Um, it is an important concept. Again, many think that you can reach the true God through other means and other religions. So things like Buddhism, naturalism, so on and so forth. And why? Well, because the spirit of God is somehow present in the world in some vague way. Uh, and so they'll say that you can therefore access God the Father through his spirit through many means. This is why they look to things like icons, um, and other sorts of sacraments. Dead, dead bodies yeah. that they kiss their... Strange Bones, stuff. Weird, weird yeah. stuff. Um, many also think that people who feel a sense of God or creator can ultimately be saved, even if they never heard of the name of Jesus or the gospel. Um, you know, so just think of those distant tribes who don't have access to the gospel, yet they very much believe that a creator exists and want to connect to him. 
Um, but since the Spirit is sent from Jesus to bear witness of Jesus, the true work of the Spirit is only present at the announcement of Jesus. That's what's important to understand. This is why there's no name under heaven that can save except Jesus alone. It is Jesus' Spirit which regenerates at the announcement of the gospel. Um, God works salvation through no other means than the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. So Paul's burden right? In, in Romans 10, 14, how shall they then call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how they, shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Um, so it's important to understand that the spirit is always at work, but he can only work through the announcement of, of the gospel. Which then the third point is that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the helper in John 14, 16. Um, his favorite word is this term paraclete. He is um, described as another helper. The first helper, of course, is Jesus, but he is going to send another like him. Uh, Jesus will not abandon his disciples. In fact, this is what he means in John 14, 18, when he says he will not leave them as orphans because he is promising to send them the Spirit. And then a fourth thing is that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth in John 14, 17. I find it very interesting how much he emphasizes the spirit in John uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16, which is uh, his time privately with his disciples. And then um, 17 is his prayer. And 18, everything starts to fall apart from a human perspective. He's arrested, yeah. the trial and everything. So he's, he invests... I mean, he's going fairly fast through John. I remember preaching through that. But when you get to John 13, everything slows down and a whole lot of instruction of him preparing his disciples. What's sad, of course, is that they don't get most of it. Yeah. Um, but later on, as he says, I will guide, the Spirit will guide you in truth, um, all of that starts to come yeah. to mind. Yeah, it's called uh, the farewell discourse. Yeah. It's this uh, great instruction it's right incredible. before his death yeah incredible one um anyhow he's called the spirit of truth in john 14 17 uh so it's important to know the language of the truth of the gospel of john jesus is the way the truth and life or the life actually as such the spirit is associated with jesus and so just as jesus is the truth so also he describes the spirit as the truth Similarly, in John uh, 8.32, we read, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. This is in reference to understanding the gospel and who Jesus is. It is that body of doctrine, what we call the truth. In light of that, then, the Spirit is said to guide us in all truth in John 16.13. Uh, here, the proposition is in uh, or the preposition, rather, uh, is important. Uh, the Spirit does not guide us into more truth. That's not, it's not uh, ace, into, it's an, in. Yep. Um, he doesn't guide us into more truth or greater revelation, one of the most common errors I see in that passage. Rather, it's the Spirit guiding us in the realm of truth that's already been revealed. Um, so it's not new stuff, it's, it's all there. And because of the Spirit's ministry, we are now guided in that that land. Um, the assumption then is that we have everything that we really need so that the Spirit functions to bring understanding and enlighten our hearts to that which already is revealed truth. You want to do the next one? Sure. Um, in 1613, Jesus, again, 14 through 16, Jesus is doing all this teaching on the Spirit. So we're just kind of bullet pointing some of the main things he talks about. But in 1613, 
Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as empowering the disciples in their witness of Jesus. So here, Jesus promises the disciples that when they go out with the message of the gospel, um, they will not be on their own. Um, the Spirit will actually prompt their minds to accurately portray that which Jesus taught them. Um, th this is true in the proclamation, but especially in the writings, those, those Spirit-inspired writings, if you will. <clears throat> right. Um, a lot of people like to apply these passages to them in particular, that the Spirit's going to give them words to say or something like that. Remember, he's talking to his disciples in the Gospels. And so in the context, I would argue he's actually speaking and giving reference to that those spirit-inspired writings that they're going to give, which ultimately ends up being the Bible. Um, in fact, this is why John repeats throughout the gospel, we have this confidence. Um, the spirit bore that special witness, uh, reminding them and, and affirming and strengthening the truth that Jesus had previously taught them. Um, and then sixth, Jesus described the Holy Spirit as being with us forever in 1416. Uh, in other words, we have a lasting seal of promise. This is picked up, of course, by Paul in Ephesians 1.13 when he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him. How? With the Holy Spirit of promise. So as new covenant members, we never have to pray David's prayer of Psalm 51 of don't take your spirit from me. Uh, this was a permanent promise. You want to get the seventh yeah, one? Yeah. So Jesus then also described the whole, or describes the Holy Spirit as glorifying Him uh, in John sixteen thirteen through fourteen. So here we see that the Spirit never speaks on His own authority, but only what was given to Him by the Son. Um, in fact, a major role of the Spirit is to point to Jesus, and um, that's so important. If people could see that it, the Spirit's never calling attention to Himself ever. Um, only charismatic world do, do you see that happening, right, right. and it's wrong. Um, this is what is wrong with charismaticism then, um, because it, it inappropriately focuses the mind upon the Spirit when the Spirit's purpose is to bring your mind to focus on the Son, and the Son is going to always bring the mind to the Father. So you also don't stop at the Son. You always stop at yeah. the Father. Um, this is so important. Anytime a big deal is made of the Spirit, uh, all they've done is now stop the true role of the Spirit, which is to get out of the way and make much of Jesus. Then eighth way is that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as dwelling with us, but also in us. Uh, so there's this intimacy. Um, it's a privilege only for believers, and it's only for New Testament, New Covenant believers, I might add, uh, for the world cannot receive him. And then ninth... Uh, and I think we'll start to draw it to a close here, um, is that Jesus describes the Spirit as declaring the future in John 16, 13. So the Spirit is going to make certain things known. This would have been uniquely encouraging to John as he's on the Isle of Patmos uh, receiving a revelation by the Spirit on what is to come, which is what we call the book of Revelation. revelation. Right. right. So um, he, he promises to... Tell us that. Yeah, exactly. So let me just give some final comments on Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There, there is no evidence of growth, and this, this is important. There's no evidence of growth of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of Jesus. Uh, so the Spirit comes unto Jesus at his, at his baptism, but no series of, of growing or fuller or secondary experiences are portrayed in the gospel accounts ever. Um, 
that's important for those who hold to like a second blessing uh, or something like that. We don't even see that happening with Jesus. There are times when Jesus was seized by a sense of urgency for a task, for instance, in John 9, 4, and yet there is no charismatic phenomena present, uh, like how some teach we see being reported in Acts, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, etc. It's simply not part of Jesus' life or his experience. Um, it is important to know that all that Jesus did as the God-man he did by the spirit. This includes everything, even all the way down to his very emotions. Uh, Luke 10, 17, for example, Jesus is described as being full of joy. How? Well, in the Holy Spirit. Um, so it is what controls him. So that's probably enough. Um, again, the... Um, New Testament. No, oh, yeah. Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Holy Spirit becomes far more prominent in the New Testament. And so we'll take a couple of, of episodes to cover everything here. So we saw that we saw the Spirit's role with John the Baptist, uh, pretty well covered everything here mentioned regarding the Spirit in Jesus. Um, not only Jesus' interactions with the Spirit, but also his own personal teaching on the Spirit. Um, so a lot here. Uh, we hope it's been a little bit of help. I, I think it was. At yeah. least it's always good to hear that stuff. Yeah. Just Probably anyway. the, one of the most confused things out there. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's literally all we have. I mean, it's that straightforward. Um, but next time we'll jump into Pentecost and the Holy Spirit and try and develop Luke's record there of what took place in Acts chapter two. Uh, so that'll be our time, time next or our plan next time, Lord willing. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the Holy Spirit with both John the Baptist and Jesus. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and tell a friend.